Now, I would like to begin this morning with a word of prayer, and we're going to get into our study again in the book of Daniel. So I invite you to bow your heads while I pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the privilege we have of coming together and studying your word with the promise of the spirit of truth to guide us into the truth. Lord, not just an intellectual understanding, not just an assent to spiritual things, but a commitment to the truth and a transformation of life. We know that this is promised us through the gift of the Spirit. We thank you this morning. As we study your word, we ask that you would bless us to that end, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For those just joining us, I'll briefly recap what we talked about yesterday morning. Our topic was the kingdom of pride. We studied how Babylon was an embodiment of Lucifer's kingdom, an embodiment of pride, an embodiment of everything that opposes or exalts itself above God or that is worshipped. We saw that Nebuchadnezzar designed a golden image that was similar to the one that God showed him in his dream in Daniel 2, but not identical, and that that image represented his prideful distortion of God's truth. We also learned that the same is true when we exalt our opinions in the place of God's revealed truth or we try to adjust God's truth to fit our perverted lifestyles. We learned that true Christianity takes place at the intersection where we yield our will to Christ. That intersection where we know that Jesus is telling us to go one way and we want to go another way but we say, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. Prior to that point, we have things in common with Christians. But we have not yet become Christians until we submit and surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. Now this morning, we're going to see if we can identify just why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood while others bowed. And how, by God's grace, we can do the same. Our study is entitled The Anatomy of Compromise, and to begin this morning, I would like you to turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 7 this morning. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 7, of course, Nebuchadnezzar has set up his image, he's made the decree, he's called people to come together for the worship of this image. The Bible says in Daniel 7 verse, or sorry, Daniel 3 verse 7, so at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, and lyre in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. It's interesting to note that these guys that are telling on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were probably some of the very guys whose lives were spared in Daniel chapter 2 by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We'll come back to that point. 
Bible says in verse 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. Interesting. If you're ready, I'm going to give you guys the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you weren't ready before. Just giving you a second chance here. And if, and if this time you bow down, we'll forget that little incident with you not bowing down. If you bow down now, good. The gracious king is giving them a second chance. He continues, but if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, I like the King James here. It says, we are not careful to answer you. You know, sometimes you've got to be careful about what you do and how you say and what you, you're counting the costs. You're weighing the consequences. We don't need to be careful, they said. In other words, we've already thought this through. Now, I alluded to this yesterday, and I'm going to make, we're going to make a point of it today. Their decision to stand firm to God was not made on the plain of Dura. They didn't need more time to think about it. They didn't need time to weigh it out. That had been done at a prior point in time, and it needs to be done at a prior point in time with you and me before we face our test. God gives us opportunities today for the tests that come tomorrow. We have no need to answer you in this matter. Verse 17, if that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. There is no hesitation whatsoever. Who's able to deliver? Our God's able to deliver. No question about it. And if our God in his wisdom should decide anything different, it's not going to change our choice in the slightest. We will not bow down to your gods, to your gold image. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. We're going to leave off our reading there this morning and unpack some things. The first thing I want to mention, and I've already alluded to it, is that this is not the beginning of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In fact, it's the end. There is no other information in the rest of Scripture about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's nothing else in the book of Daniel. This is the end of their story. Their decisions that they made on the plain of Dura were the fruition of decisions made earlier. And we get insight in that as we go to Daniel 1. So I'm going to have you go back a couple chapters with me. 
We're just looking at the first eight verses this morning for sake of time. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Daniel 1 and verse 1, the Bible says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, into the house of his God. Now, this was customary for foreign kings. When they would conquer another nation, they would take articles. It didn't say he took the articles from the house of God into a museum somewhere in Babylon. It took them into the house of his God in Babylon. It was a way of saying, my God is better than your God. It's interesting to me as you go through these several different accounts of captivities that while God permits these pagan nations to take these treasures back, he always has a way of demonstrating that I only allowed this to happen. I'm still God and I'm still in charge. It says in verse 3, the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Did the king choose everybody that came as captive? What does it tell us here? He looked, he had his leaders look for young men in whom there was promise of a future in Babylon. I want you to understand that in Daniel chapter 1, the king is conferring probably the greatest privilege upon Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah that he could possibly confer. I'm going to take a special liking to you. I'm going to put you into my palace. I'm going to train you to be leaders in Babylon. Bible says in verse 5, the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. What does it mean among those who were of the sons of Judah? That means they were not the only Jews there in the program. To them, verse 7 the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So right there at the onset, right there in the beginning, we're told that Daniel made a decision and obviously Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah made that same decision that they would not defile themselves. They made a commitment here long before Dura that they were going to serve God. But I want to draw something out from this story today, something that I believe is, is one of the key factors in compromise and that's something, and we see it right here in Babylon, is the influence of culture. The Babylonians sought to use the power of cultural influence to their advantage. Right here in chapter 1, what does he do with these captives? He brings them into the courts of Babylon. He puts them with other students. More than likely, Babylonian students were in there as well. Students from other heathen nations, and they were all together in a group. He gives them a special diet. That was part of his forethought and plan. 
He shows favor to them. He gives them different names. And he gives them an elite education. All of these things with the purpose of acclimating them to the customs of Babylon. Dr. Leslie Harding in his book, Jesus is My Judge, says on page 18, these new names were to indicate a new ownership. Babylon was not the only nation that would do this, that renamed their, their captives. He says these new names were to indicate a new ownership as well as a new allegiance. Ellen White is a little plainer in the book Prophets and Kings, page 481. She says the names of Daniel and his companions were changed to names representing Chaldean deities. I forgot to mention this, that the, all the names, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were names that gave glory to the God of heaven. Their new names gave glory to the gods of the Chaldeans. This is what Ellen White tells us right here. Now listen to what it goes on to say. It says, The king did not compel the Hebrew youth to renounce their faith in favor of idolatry. You're allowed to keep on being Jews. Worship the God of heaven. He didn't require them to renounce their faith to worship the gods of the Chaldeans. Listen, but he hoped to bring this about gradually. By giving them names significant of idolatry, by bringing them daily into close association with idolatrous customs, and under the influence of the seductive rites of heathen worship, he hoped to induce them to renounce the religion of their nation and to unite with the worship of the Babylonians, gradually over time, as they got acclimated. We talked yesterday about how the kingdom of Babylon was an example of Lucifer's kingdom, and I'm going to tell you he works that same angle today. In fact, culture has been one of the most effective tools in Satan's toolkit for a long time. Some of God's most faithful people have caved to the crowd. You take the King Herod, Herod the Great. The Bible tells us that Herod the Great had John the Baptist beheaded. But listen to me carefully. He, was not, he did not have John beheaded because he thought John was guilty of any crime. He did not have John beheaded because he didn't believe that John was a prophet of God. I want you to go with me to Matthew 14, verse 9, and let's look at what the Bible says, why Herod had John beheaded. Matthew chapter 14, verse 9. Matthew chapter 14, verse 9, the Bible says here, we'll look at verse 8 first. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. So he didn't do it, right? Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him. He commanded it to be given to her. No, he believed John was a prophet of God, but because of the crowd, because of those who sat with him, because he didn't want to be embarrassed, because he'd made an oath, he went against his conscience and compromised. Peter denied Christ because of a servant girl in the courtyard. 
Ellen White commenting on that in Desire of Ages, page 712, tells us this, many who do not shrink from active warfare for their Lord are driven by ridicule to deny their faith. Wasn't that Peter? Lord, I'll die for you. They come into the garden to arrest him. Out comes the sword, right? Off goes the ear. Like a courageous soldier. But then when the servant girl says, oh, aren't you one of those? He caves to the crowd. Many who do not shrink from active warfare for their Lord are driven by ridicule to deny their faith by associating with those whom they should avoid. They place themselves in the way of temptation. They do what? It's there on the screen. They invite the enemy to tempt them. Never a good idea. And are led to say and do that of which under other circumstances they would never have been guilty. The disciple of Christ who in our day disguises his faith through dread of suffering or reproach denies his Lord as really as did Peter in the judgment hall. My brothers and sisters, it's an unfortunate fact of fallen humanity that we have a very unhealthy desire to belong. I believe it was, George, at least it's George Bernard Shaw who was credited with saying, he didn't use the word culture, he used the word custom. He said, custom will reconcile man to any atrocity. Custom will reconcile man to any atrocity. Now, if I were to tell you gentlemen here that I wanted you to go, it's not cold enough out, it needs to be around 30 degrees or lower, and, and I want you to take your shirts off and go out and paint your face and your upper torso, you look at me and say, you are insane, man. But if I put you inside of a football stadium, suddenly it makes sense. Custom will reconcile man to any atrocity. And there have been far worse atrocities that we've been reconciled to because the crowd says it's normal. In his best-selling book, Atomic Habits, author James Clear tells of the now famous conformity line experiment. Now, in fact, the, the experiment was conducted in, in 1951 by social psychologist Solomon Ash. He actually did a series of these studies on conformity. This is one of them, the line experiment, which I'll explain in a moment. The purpose of the study was to determine the extent to which social pressure from a majority group could affect a person to conform. In other words, how much pressure does it take for a person to cave into the crowd? Fascinating study. Quoting from Atomic Habits, this is in chapter 9, called The Role of Friends and Family in Shaping Your Habits. The book says, To begin each experiment, the subject entered the room with a group of strangers. Unbeknownst to them, the other participants were actors planted by the researcher and instructed to deliver scripted answers to certain questions. So just so you understand this, you, say you, you volunteer for the study, you participate, so you come into a room and you see other people there and you're assuming that everybody else there is just like you. You're coming in, you're learning about what the test is and you're going to take the test. What you don't know is everybody else in the room is an actor that already has the way they're going to act to influence your behavior, but you don't know this. As they came into the room, it says, goes on to say, this is how the test rolled out, the group would be shown 
two cards. One card had one line on it, the other card had multiple lines. In the example I saw, there were three lines. So you got one line on one card, and the other line had, or the other card had three lines of different lengths. And perhaps you've done these kind of things before where they, they, they show you, you know, which line is wide, is the, is, the, is the hat taller or wider, and these kind that try to play with your senses. This was not that way. In this study, they were to match the line, the one line with whichever one of the three lines looked identical, and they made it obvious. It wasn't one of those, I want to trick you on this. It was obvious which line matched. And so they would show several examples of this. And for the first few instances, everybody in the room was instructed to agree with, with the subject. You know, he just thinks he's in a room with other people. Oh, yeah, that's obviously the same line. And oh, that's obviously the same line. And they matched them for a few. Now, listen. It, 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 as, as the study progressed, the participants were shown a test that was just as obvious as the previous ones, except the actors in the room would select an intentionally incorrect answer. So it's just as obvious that this line matches this line, only all the actors say, no, 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 this line matches. And so the person who's the subject, as obvious as it is, starts to second guess. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. Initially, let me read on for a little bit here. The book goes on to say that Ash, Dr. Ash ran this experiment many times and in many different ways. What he discovered was as the number of people increased to three actors and four and all the way to eight, the subject became more likely to second guess. Now, I've got to stop there and say, all the way to eight? I'm thinking a room of 25 people, right? A big crowd. Reality is, you don't need a big crowd to influence you in a different direction. The biggest group was eight people, eight extra people. So I guess eight in the subject, you've got nine. And so when there are maybe two people in the room and, and, and it was obvious what the answer was, like this line matches this line, but the actor said, oh, no, 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 I think it's this other line, the subject might have been tempted to say, those guys are crazy. But as the number went up, three, four, five of the actors, and they're like, no, 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 you're wrong. That line is the right line, not this other one. As the number of people increased, the subject became more likely to second-guess themselves. By the end of the experiment, nearly 75% of the subjects had agreed with the group answer, even though it was obviously incorrect. And then Clear draws this conclusion. The reward of being accepted is often greater than the reward of winning an argument, looking smart, or finding truth. Now listen to this sentence. Most days, we'd rather be wrong with the crowd than right by ourselves. Most days, we'd rather be wrong with the crowd and right by ourselves. And now let's bring that in to our day. There's something now that's been a phenomena for the past few years that has been dubbed cancel culture. And my, in my, when I was growing up, we just called it old-fashioned peer pressure. And this is where it's a social media phenomenon where a person, where, where, where basically you have the judge, jury, and executioner of social media that if you put something out, if you make a statement and society disagrees with it, 
You get backlash for that. And it doesn't matter what you're saying. Like a person can be saying something that they just simply believe. In this generation, it seems like I'm not even allowed to have an opinion anymore. Unless it runs through the approval of the crowd. That's at least the way the world runs. Now I'm going to tell you, it wasn't different with me growing up in terms of quality, but quantity has changed. Because social media, and let me be clear here, I'm not demonizing social media. I'm not saying it's all evil and of the devil. But I will tell you this about social media. Social media has led many people to live their lives on a social stage. I mean, I, I don't get it. So I, because I, I'm older, I guess. I don't care if anybody knows where I went on vacation and what the pictures had and all this other. I mean, it's like everywhere you go, it's like, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. I don't care. I don't care that you know. But today, that apparently is the way that we, we want to chronicle our lives. And the thing is, when you put yourself on the social stage, then you put yourself in a position to be judged by the social stage. Which in itself isn't awful unless you're influenced by that. And the sad reality is we have an unhealthy desire to belong. And so I may even have a personal conviction of right, but when the crowd says, oh, you shouldn't have that conviction, you're not allowed to have it anymore. I may have a fashion preference. Oh, no, that fashion looks lousy. Well, I can't wear that anymore, I guess. Too many people today are living for the likes instead of living for the Lord. I'll give you a personal experience. Recently... <laughs> It was bizarre to me. So I grew up in Ohio. I'm an Ohio boy, and I grew up going to Cincinnati Reds games. Anybody hear of the Cincinnati Reds before? It's a baseball team. And you can imagine their uniform is red, and I have a Reds hat. Now, my Reds hat, it's a big red hat with a C on the... for Cincinnati. Well, somebody at work at the conference office in Michigan commented one day, I came up close, and they said, oh, what's that on your hat? I said, it's a C. What, what's it for? I said, Cincinnati. And then they chuckled and they said, I thought it was a MAGA hat. And I just got to thinking to myself, how many, even today, I mean, I hesitate wearing a blue suit with a red tie. Well, you, you laugh because you know right away. This is, like, we can't even think for ourselves anymore. The crowd's got to think for us. Well, I protest. I'm going to wear my red tie. I don't care what that other guy does. And let's be honest, too. I mean, you talk about, if, when it comes to politics, well, I've got to be careful because I'm on a timer here. <laughs> but I will make this point. Inspiration tells us as Seventh-day Adventists we should be nonpartisan. We are not Democrat. We are not Republican. We are not Libertarian. We are for truth. And if the guy in the blue suit and a red tie says something true, I'm going to agree because it's true. And if he got a guy in office says something true, I'm going to believe. And if they both say falsehood, then I'm going to say they're both false. Well, James Clear goes on to give this recommendation after the end of talking about society and the, the pressures of culture and how people would often rather be wrong with the crowd than right by themselves. He gives this recommendation. He says, one of the most effective things you can do to build better habits is to join a culture where, one of two things, well, both of two things, join a culture where, number one, your desired behavior is the normal behavior. 
Because we're going to be influenced by the crowd, choose a better crowd, he says. Just from a standpoint of forming habits. And number two, join a culture where you already have something in common with the group. Which brings us back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And my question to you now is, in light of these things, why didn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bow to the crowd? And the answer is plain. They did. They just bowed to a different crowd. See, everybody bows to something. We all are looking for someone's approval. Whose approval are you looking for? When they came before the king and he said, which, which God is able? They said, our God, mark my words here, our God whom we serve is able. They had chosen which crowd was going to influence them. The key to their faithfulness is that they were not influenced by the worldly crowd because they had chosen to align themselves with the heavenly crowd. <clears throat> and you've heard the saying, I'm sure, God plus one is a majority. Besides the multitude of heavenly angels in the heavenly universe. We're told in, Ellen White says, in the Youth's Instructor of April 26, 1904, true Christian principle does not stop to weigh consequences. It does not ask, what will people think of me if I do this? Or how will it affect my worldly prospects if I do that? With singleness of purpose, the children of God desire to know what He would have them to do, that their works may glorify Him. Too many of us are living for the wrong crowd. Now I'm going to contrast this in our minutes remaining, with another Jew that was on the plain of Dura that day. <clears throat> Likely. I can't, I can't be absolutely positive. But I shared with you the other day that, that most historians will date this, this chapter 3 in 594-593 B.C. And they do that because in Jeremiah 51-59, we're told that King Zedekiah of Jerusalem was summoned to Babylon. And the thought is that he was probably summoned as he would have been to that golden image in the dedication. Now the story of Zedekiah is a tragic one. Zedekiah was pretty close to the same age of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but had a very different experience. In fact, Zedekiah had, after the, you know, you had all the false prophets of Jerusalem saying, oh, the captivity is never going to happen. God's going to protect us. Well, it did happen. The first wave of captivity came and Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah are carried off to Babylon along with others and treasures from the king's house. That kind of gives credibility to the prophet of God's prophecies that this is going to happen, right? So he summons, Zedekiah summons Jeremiah and he says, tell me, what should I do? I'm paraphrasing here. You can read about this in Jeremiah chapter 38. And Jeremiah pled with the king, just please, Submit to the king of Babylon and things will go better. And Zedekiah's response was this, in essence. I'm afraid of those who have defected to the Chaldeans, lest they mock me. Now Ellen White commenting on Zedekiah makes this statement in Prophets and Kings 4.57. After years of rebellion against God, 
Zedekiah thought it too humiliating to say to his people, I accept the word of the Lord as spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. Right away, what's humiliation? It's his own pride. It's his own ego. It's what the crowd's going to think of me. She continues, the king had started on a wrong course and he would not retrace his steps. Brothers and sisters, if you forget everything else I say this morning, let me make something clear. It doesn't matter where you are and what course you've been on. The Lord has brought you here and today you can change your course. The Lord will receive you today if you change your course. Zedekiah could have changed his course. That's why God sent Jeremiah to him. She continues, he decided to follow the counsel of the false prophets and of the men whom he really despised and who ridiculed his weakness in yielding so readily to their wishes. Listen, the crowd does not love you. This, this, whole, this whole, what I want to say, this, this whole uh, uh, illusion of acceptance today, it, it's not acceptance. It's, it, it, this is the basic gist of it. Um, I'm making this up. Let's say I'm cheating on my wife. And let's say you're, you're stealing money. Listen, I'm not going to rat you out if you don't rat me out. The reason that society wants to be so inclusive is we want to be inclusive of sin. The Lord told Cain in the Garden of Eden, if you do well, won't you be accepted? No, we want to be accepted with our sin. And so we're like, oh, no, no. We're going to, as a society, we want to embrace, oh, we want to embrace sin is what we want to embrace. And the crowd doesn't care about you. Unless you're talking about the crowd of heaven. Zedekiah caved to the crowd who ridiculed him for his weakness in caving. She says, he sacrificed, now listen, he sacrificed the noble freedom of his manhood and became a cringing slave to public opinion. With no fixed purpose to do evil, he was also without resolution to stand boldly for the right. Convicted though he was of the value of the counsel given by Jeremiah, he did not have the moral stamina to obey. He had so long taken that wrong road. A cringing slave to public opinion. I'm thinking, listen, there is no one in this room today who wants that as the description of their life. I can imagine me coming to GYC and it's like our morning speakers. Mark Howard, a pastor, conference administrator, husband, father of two wonderful children, a cringy, cringing slave to public opinion. That, I don't want that. You don't want that. But that was Zedekiah's legacy. Thankfully, it was not the experience of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their youth. They took personal stands for Christ. They committed themselves to his truth. They pledged themselves wholeheartedly to his cause. And in their manhood, they did not waver in their loyalty, even in the face of death. They didn't care about what the worldly crowd said because they were more concerned with what the heavenly crowd thought. I can't help but think the thought comes to my mind of Jan Hus, the reformer, who before they burned him at the stake, they gave him one last chance to recant. They said... All you have to do is recant your faith and you can live. And Huss turned to the people and he said, with what face then would I behold the heavens? And how would I look on those people I preached the gospel to? No, he said, this mortal body is not worth it to me more than the salvation of their souls. And he consigned himself to the flames. And there was no deliverance then for Jan Hus. With what face are you going to behold the heavens, my brother, my sister? 
What are you going to answer the Lord if you cave to the crowd in light of the infinite price that Jesus Christ paid so you could stand firm? Going back to the denial of Peter, it's interesting to me that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all shared this same phrase when talking about Peter going into the judgment hall. John, the disciple, followed Jesus closely, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say, quote, but Peter followed at a distance. Peter didn't want to be seen over there so close to Christ. How are you following Christ this morning? Are you following closely or are you following at a distance? Let's be clear about something, saints. Jesus didn't just show up in the furnace. In Daniel 3, he was there the whole time. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been walking with him. They were close to him. He was by their side. And when they went into the furnace, he remained by their side. They by his. Are you by the side of Christ this morning? Or are you following him at a distance? Prophets and Kings 487 says, in closing, as the Lord cooperated with Daniel and his fellows, so he will cooperate with all who strive to do his will. And by the impartation of his spirit, he will strengthen every purpose, every noble resolution. Those who walk in the path of obedience will encounter many hindrances. Strong, subtle influences may bind them to the world, but the Lord is able to render futile every agency that works for the defeat of his chosen ones in his strength they may overcome every temptation and conquer every difficulty praise the lord jesus hallelujah to that this morning again i want to ask you are you following christ closely or have you been following at a distance my question to you this morning is regardless where you have been how many of this morning say by the grace of god I don't want to worry about what the world thinks anymore. I want to worry about what pleases Jesus and I want to follow him closely. I want to be by his side. I want him by my side. Is that your desire this morning? If it is, raise your hands with me this morning and bow your heads as we pray. Father in heaven, as we meditate upon these things this morning, and Lord, you have spoken through clay, but I pray your spirit would speak clearly to our hearts and our minds. Far too many of us are too worried about what the world thinks. And you have told us, Lord, that if we were of the world, the world would love its own, but we are not of the world. You've chosen us out of the world. May we, oh Lord, may we see that as a privilege, as an honor. And I pray that you would take the hands that are raised this morning, Lord. You see our desire. Give us the strength to stand faithfully. Give us the strength to walk by your side. And Lord, stay by our side is our prayer. And Lord, for those who didn't raise their hands or in their hearts, they feel distant this morning. There are those here that are wrestling. I pray your spirit would bring them comfort in knowing your willingness to receive them. Lord, reveal to them your purpose for their lives, and I pray that you would give them no rest until they commit themselves to you. May we leave this convention different people than the people we were when we came, that the people around us may look at us and know that we have been with Jesus. This is my prayer in his name and for his sake.
This message was recorded in partnership with AudioBurst, the GYC conference, but if not, in Portland, Oregon. GYC is a supportive ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take sacrificial initiative for Christ and to see Jesus finish the work in this generation. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.